Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Good morning, Paul. Thank you for joining Crypto Unstacked. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm a uh, longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, fantastic. For those who don't know, Paul Kremsey is the head of business development, global head of business development for Cumberland DRW, which is um, one of the largest um, trading firms, not just in the traditional finance side, but also in in crypto. And we'll go into his background and the business and and everything that's going on during this pod. Paul, if I can just start with your background, Um, you studied in Chicago, is that correct? Yeah. So I, uh, I went to the University of Chicago. And while I was there, I studied uh, math. And a lot of people, when they go to Chicago, they end up studying economics as well. So I did a double major. When I graduated, you kind of have this choice if you're in the econ department at Chicago. The way think people put it to you, they say, oh, you majored in econ. Are you going to go into iBanking or are you going to go into consulting? Like though, That's the universe of choices. Neither of those really appealed to me. And when I was at the intern career fair, I came across DRW's booth. And it was the first time that I had considered going into trading. And the idea, not just of trading, but of prop trading, it really appealed to the competitive, my competitive nature. I was an athlete in college, I I wrestled. And so the idea of trading was very appealing. At the end of that year, I had a, a couple of different offers in the trading space. And one of them was from DRW. And then there were several from bank trading desks. And the pitch from the banks was essentially, you come work here, and then two years later, you can go get whatever job you want. And I said, okay, well, that sounds great. But what job am I going to want to do in two years? And when I really thought about it, the job at DRW was really kind of the job I was looking for. And so I said, okay, well, let's let's skip those two years and let's just get to it. Right. So, so one of the things that fascinated me, because I obviously come from the same trading floor background as, as where DRW uh, originated was, how do the sort of trading firms that are not kind of big brand names to schools compete with, say, the trading side of banks to get your attention? Is it just through careers fairs or, or do they, you know, kind of like all the big prop shops well known around uh, University of Chicago by, by name already? Or how do you discover DRW, for example? Yeah, there's a few things there. In the case of DRW, they um, they really appealed 
to the nerdy side of my nature. And when I interviewed there, there were a lot of math puzzles, a lot of mental math that they kind of had us jump through. And, you know, for someone like me, that was really exciting and really appealing. Obviously, if you come from Chicago, DRW is a brand name there, although it was kind of niche at the time in this prop trading space. And I think mm-hmm. since then, you know, this is 15 years later, it's expanded a lot. But it, I de- we definitely had that, that knowledge of DRW back then. Yeah. And the other trait, which is interesting that you mentioned your sporting back, athletic background was the other trait I, you know, I think from a trading background is you see a lot of athletes who kind of get selected by, by these firms, right? And now Chicago was kind of interesting because, you know, when the pit traders in Chicago came to London, we just, we just kind of, they were just huge, you know, and I was just like this, you know, shorter guys. And, you know, I remember these two guys coming for, uh, I think, Apollo trading at the time, and they were stu- stood next to Don. And, you know, you know Don, who is the principal in DRW, comes after, you know, the name are his initials. I remember Don's kind of like my height, and there was these two rowing giants who just come from winning the uh, silver medal at the Olympics and who are now pit traders for these U.S. houses, right? And uh, I think, that, you know, the combination of your maths and athletic background, I could see why, uh, why DR would, uh, you know, DRW would, would totally, you know, like to have you as a trainee. When I first started trading, I was the upstairs trader and I was working with a couple of guys uh, who were in the CME Euro dollar pits. And so these guys, as you say, these guys are six foot four, big, loud guys. And then they, they've got me upstairs listening and, and working on the computers. And then you could always tell at the end of the day, they would come back up to the office, talk about the trading day. And you could always tell the pit traders and the upstairs traders just by looking at them. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, you were now um, upstairs in, I guess you were training on the on the euro dollar books you just said. Was that futures or was that options or, or both? Or Yeah. So I was a futures guy. A lot of the company at the time and still was focused on options and I was focused on futures. So when we would do our training sessions and we would do the mock trading of options, yeah. I, I would just get destroyed by my, my fellow classmates <laughs> and the guys who I had started with. But it was an amazing education. So it's one of the reasons that I, I really like the idea of starting with new hires and recruiting directly from uh, universities because the education on that that I got in that first year, I was sitting literally a foot away from one of the DRW partners and he was trading all day and I was hand punching his trade into an Excel sheet. And it sounds a little bit mind numbing, but you learn so much through osmosis, through just sitting yeah. that close to a trader hearing him talk about it to the other guys on the team. And to me, that's you know really one of the best ways that you can learn. I've obviously been with DRW for my whole career for 14, 15 years. I'm not alone. Cumberland's global head, Chris Zilke, he started in DRW in 2014, and this is the only job that he's had as well. So we kind of share this having you know the company background and having learned through the company. And that's one of the reasons why when we think about recruiting, we really like to focus on the graduate recruiting as well, because we think that that's really, when you start with people that young, you get to kind of instill the culture and teach them how people within DRW are not just running their own books, but kind of working across desks, working as a team, working for you know the good of the company as opposed to a single desk. Yeah, no, it's, it's a phenomenal house. And, and the training programs that you get out of this is, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I, I come from, uh, I joined a firm called Cooper Neff, which was a, a, a Pennsylvania-based market-making firm, just like DRW in the day. And, you know, we used to have mock trading sessions after a 10-hour day, you know, at night, and there was no mercy. You know, there was just, you just go f- 
full on, which, you know, and the partners would mock trade with you and be so upset if you beat them to a trade or you out traded them. And, and equally, they would just rag on you for like, you know, making mistakes. But it was a, a learning experience I've, you know, been, I've never seen since. So I totally get it. So then from Chicago, you then made a move to the London office. What was that all about? Was that a kind of a, a new book or was that to cover Euro dollars again? Or what were you trading? Yeah. So um, one of my really close friends, uh, Chad Miller, who I believe you know, he wanted to start an equities desk in London. And he asked me if, if I was interested in, in starting that up with him. That he was also at the time, he was part of Mike Komaransky's team, who I also know you know. And so I went out there and we started an equities desk. We were trading equity Delta One. So we were trading a lot of different derivatives on the underlying equities. We would trade the equities as well. Things like rolls, things like EFPs, things like diff swaps. And then later, things like ETFs, which is really important because if you fast forward, and I know we'll get there, but if you fast forward a few years, that same team is still running at DRW and they are trading the crypto ETFs. And so that's still you know, a very active part of my life today. Fantastic. And so how long were you in London for? I was in London uh, from 2010 to 2015. So I spent a lot of my 20s there and spending one's 20s in London is something I really recommend. And then in 2015, I was part of the team that helped open up the DRW Singapore office. And so I moved out here. And again, spending one's 30s in Singapore, I would also really recommend. (laughs) Well, first of all, I need to ask you, I mean, do you miss the warm beer that you used to have in London? I mean, you know, that's kind of like a rites of passage. But um... there are a lot of things I miss. I miss about London. The warm beer is actually not one of them. (laughs) Fantastic. The move to Singapore was within equities as well, equities trading. So the team that was starting out here was a little bit more of an automated trading desk. And so I had to kind of build up my skill set to join that team. So I had to spend my nights and weekends teaching myself uh, just a little bit of programming, not enough to, you know, really cause a lot of damage, but enough to be a little bit dangerous. And so I joined that team. And then a few years later, I had the opportunity to start DRW's Asia Commodities team. So I was trading things like iron ore, rubber. Singapore electricity, really getting the exposure to a lot of different commodities and a lot of different asset classes. On SGX primarily, I I would take it, right? Would that be the case? A lot of SGX, yeah, that's right. So it would have been around this time that, uh, you know, you mentioned Mike Komaransky, you know, who's who's a DRW partner, uh, one of the founders of Cumberland and a huge CoinFlex stakeholder in many ways, you know, as a trader, as a, as a yield farmer, as a token holder, equity holder. So he, so I know Como kind of got into crypto very, very early and would kind of, you know, get on, you know, bash the crypto Bible to everyone who was around him and in, in the London office at DR this time. But was that how you sort of learned, kind of became interested in crypto or heard about it? Was it through Como? Was it through somewhere else? And, and, and how was your, your journey there? Yeah, no, I have to uh, I have to give the credit to Como. He talked to about it to us really early. And, you know, one of my eternal regrets is what he was saying made a lot of sense. And at the end of the day, I thought, yeah, this sounds like a great trade. How do I do it? And he started to describe it. And it, I kind of, OK, that's that seems like a lot. Right. It wasn't as easy back then it is, as it is now. And yeah. so it was sheer sloth that made me not invest in crypto at, you know, two dollars or whatever it was at the time. However, eventually I did jump on the bandwagon. I did uh, get involved, get some skin in the game in crypto. And like the next day it dropped in value by like 35%, which uh, you remember the early days of volatility. This may have been a blessing in the long term, um, because as everyone knows, 
a long-term trade is a short-term trade that goes badly. And so <laughs> by getting in with a pretty hefty drawdown, I kind of said, okay, I guess I'm a hodler now. And I have been a hodler ever since. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. So for those who don't know the listeners, um, so obviously DRW is the, the parent company and the kind of TradFi HFT business and Cumberland DRW or Cumberland Trading or Cumberland Mining and Trading, I think you guys were calling it at the start, is the crypto arm. At which point or which year did you start transitioning away from the DRW side of the, of the business to the, the Cumberland side? Yeah, so in, uh, in 2017, like a lot of people, I was paying a lot of attention to crypto. During my, when I was supposed to be doing my day job, when I was supposed to be looking at you know, Australian port inventories and Chinese housing starts and things like that, instead, I was reading about, about SegWit and Ethereum ICOs. And I was really spending most of the time I was supposed to be working reading about crypto. And I think a lot of people were in the similar situation. But what I had going for me is that I sat literally one row away from one of the largest crypto desks in the market, that being Cumberland. So as opposed to like making this huge plunge into a new company, into a new market, I was able to literally walk around the row and give them my resume and say, hey guys, I would be really interested in, in working with you and, and I want to take the jump into crypto. Yeah. How does that work in, you know, for newbies, you know, traders joining these kind of big firms, even like DRW, how is the transition within your firm between people who kind of want to switch from TradFi to crypto, because obviously we're seeing a lot of people coming over from banking, from trading sides, you know, who leave banks to set up their own businesses. But let's say within DR and Cumberland, is that a lot of interaction between the two teams? You know, can people switch around young grads who are kind of start on one side of the business who become super crypto interested? Can they kind of like put their hand up and say, hey, if something comes up, can you consider me? Is that, is that how it would work for those listening? Yeah, it's often how it works. It's how it works for myself. It's how it works for uh, Matt Connolly, who's on my team and several other guys as well. You know, for me, I was very attracted to the newness of the market, right? To be able to trade in an environment that hadn't already been worked over by 20 years of guys squeezing all of the edge out, squeezing all the, of the efficiency out. The other thing that was really appealing to me was I viewed this as my chance to be part of the, of the cutting edge of a new financial instrument, of a new financial market. I mentioned earlier, I do a little coding, but for the most part, if I want to be involved in fintech, it's not going to be by coding. That's just not in my skill set. So if I wanted to be part of the frontier, I have to do it as a trader because that's who I am. The other thing that really appealed to me at the time is I loved the sheer ambition that Cumberland had. This was not a case where we wanted to find a very, very small niche of the market and you know scratch out a nice little PL. This was a case where we wanted to be the largest OTT, OTC desk in the market. We wanted to help bring institutions who were still potentially decades away. We wanted to bring them into the market within a matter of years instead of decades. And so this ambition, this really, really large scale vision is what attracted me and what really clinched it for me. In a way, this has played out the way that we foresaw. When we were first speaking to institutions and trying to convince them, hey, you know, crypto is something you should pay attention to, at the beginning, we couldn't get a meeting. We couldn't get guys to listen to us. And I'm talking hedge funds, banks, asset managers. You know, someone comes in talking about crypto. How did you get into my office? How did you get here? And now, you know, it's just four years later and the crypto space has been moving towards the institutions. The institutions have also been moving towards the crypto space. And it's really gratifying that now we are speaking to and working with the same banks, 
asset managers, interdealer brokers, we're speaking to the same ones now that I was trading with back in my London days and before I made the jump over to crypto. No, that's fantastic. So what, what was interesting in, and you know, maybe there's a chance, you know, you can give, give the uh, listeners a little couple of little bits about what Cumberland does, but maybe in the context of, so when I was speaking to um, Max Boonen, who's the you know, CEO of uh, B2C2, who came on here and, you know, a similar background to you, he was an FX trader and then founded B2C2 for crypto. His approach to building out B2C2 for OTC trading was really around being electronic because he looked at where he thought crypto would be you know, four years from there in the future, a few years forwards from what he saw at Goldman's and went all in kind of electronic rather than sort of more chat-based and hand-holding relationship-based type trades. How did Cumberland position itself? Was it electronic and OTC? How it started and how has that evolved from when you, when you joined the business? Yeah, so the electronic pieces take time to grow. Electronic trading is a huge focus for us now and has been for the last several years. And we think that this is where the market is going to go in general. With that said, in 2017, most of the trading was in Telegram, was in Skype, was over email, over the phone, really quite low tech. And so the relationships really did mean quite a bit. There are always trades, and this is true in traditional markets as well. There are always going to be trades that just work better when you're having a conversation with a relationship manager who's kind of working out the trade with you. Mm-hmm. However, we have a huge focus on electronic trading, and that's really where we're trying to help the market grow. I think since 2017, There are really three main ways that the market has changed. The OTC space has changed. The first is the regulatory picture. Not that the regulatory picture is completely clear now, but in 2017, it was really a lot lot murkier. In an unclear regulatory environment, you kind of have two choices. You can say, okay, what can we do? Let's go do it. But if you're a major financial institution, that is, it's really not going to fly, right? You have to look ahead and you have to say, okay, what do we think the regulations are going to look like five years from now? And you have to kind of abide by that. And so over the past few years, you know, this is really has started to clear up and it started to play out in the way that we've always thought it has. And so a lot of times we've kind of, we've been on the conservative side, compliance. We registered uh, with FinCEN as a money service, uh, as an MSB, and we applied for licenses in several jurisdictions, kind of trying to stay ahead of the curve. We're also part of the regulatory conversation. We're not just bystanders. We're also in the conversation. We were invited, for example, to be part of the president's working group for stablecoins. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, you guys are perfectly positioned for that side of the to try and guide the market, you know, which is uh, fantastic, especially because, like, using Max as another example, you know, he, you know, they recently sold a chunk of his business to SBI because he had constant issues with institutional customers about credit risk and the size of his balance sheet, which obviously when people come to Cumberland and they know that DRW sits behind them, you know, that helps you do size OTC trades without the risk of, you know, whilst, you know, diminishing the the counterparty credit risk question, which is a huge help for you guys and no, no doubt why you're so successful as a business. During this point, you kind of left trading and became BD and then global head of BD. What, what made you leave the trading side and go more into the relationship side? It wasn't an easy one for me. You know, at the end of the day, when you look on my tombstone, it's going to say, mm-hmm. Paul Kremsky, husband, father, trader. Like trader is really, you know, very firmly in my DNA. Um, it's definitely, mm-hmm. you know, part of who I am. But, you know, a- as you said, I started spending more and more time on the business development side of the ball. And that really appealed to me. A lot of the times when you're trading, you're kind of thinking, okay, how can I profit maximize, profit maximize the position that I'm in right now? or you know, the next 24 hours, or even the next month. 
And yeah. one of the things that is really appealing, you know, particularly when you're talking about a new market, is when business development is very similar, but you're actually thinking more, okay, how can we grow the entire size of the pie? Not just how can we make, have a good month or how can we have a good year, but how can we actually grow the whole market? Because we know that if we have a certain slice of the pie, as the pie grows, as crypto gets bigger and financial institutions come in, that's going to be good for the people who are involved and are trading it on a day-to-day basis. So that side really, really appealed to me. And I love working with other companies, forming partnerships and cooperating with other players in the space. No, fantastic. No, it's, yeah, it's good to have you. And you're, you're a great counterpart for us too. So now one of the other interesting trends I've been seeing, you know, you know, which was very different to yours and my day as a, as a trader was that a lot of the big market making firms are now also becoming active investors. And, and, you know, we're seeing this a lot across crypto. What's Cumberland's history been on the investing side, both in sort of TradFi and, and crypto? Are you guys like these guys as well? Yes, in a lot of ways. We are actually active here in, in two separate spaces. One is on the DRWVC side, where typically the deals are going to be larger and more equity focused. So for example, we are investors in CoinFlex. We uh, partnered with uh, Fireblocks. So doing these equity deals, these are really exciting for us. However, in crypto, you also have to think about the crypto native side of investments. And we've gotten really active there in the past few years. Part of the reason for this is we realized that with our trading experience, both in traditional markets and in crypto, we had a lot to add to the conversation because so many of these projects were really focused on trading. And so we started getting involved with a lot of projects that were really, really focused on trading or trading infrastructure. A great example there is something like Vega, something like Dtrade, where we felt that we had a lot to add to a conversation. It sounds like a total line. I know it does. But when we make an investment, our goal is not just to write a check and hope that the underlying goes up, but we really do want to focus on projects where we can add something a lot more than just, okay, here's some money. Best of luck. I hope it goes well. We really want to you know, work with them, talk to them about, you know, what traders are looking for in these projects. Now, at the beginning, we were really focused on trading centric projects. But recently, obviously, we spend a lot of time thinking about crypto in general. And what that has meant is we see a lot of room for growth in other sectors of the market that are not directly related to trading. So recently, we've made investments in gaming projects. Obviously, we pay a lot of attention to DeFi as well. Oh, no, that's fantastic. No, it sounds like exactly like everyone else in the space with a, you know, kind of a wide spectrum of, of a hundred X, thousand X plays. So good for you guys as well. One of the things that's fascinated me, and I'll, I'll come back to the DeFi question I have for you, but one of the other things that has been uh, fascinated me about um, Cumberland in particular is that obviously crypto options has been growing over the last few years. And, you know, there's on Deribit and CME and, and a few other exchanges, obviously those two dominate the options OI. Now, DRW are one of the largest options traders in, in the world by far. And yet on the uh, crypto side, there's been like no word of DRW, on, uh, sorry, of Cumberland till very, very recently. And I remember asking Don when I met him uh, about two years ago over a coffee, asking me, you know, why that was the case. And at the time, you know, his, his kind of main reasoning was that it was counterparty risk. And he was like, look, we take on enormous positions and we're not really sure whether the, the, the other side, the venue essentially, and the counterparties on the venue will be good enough to start, you know, steaming up the PL or there's a sort of a black swan event. 
what's changed? Because I now, now obviously I hear in the market and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are becoming very, very active on, on options now, particularly on CME. Well, was that sort of the, was the change in position there really around because of the size of CME and stuff? And now is that what kind of brought you guys into the market? Yeah, I think there are a few pieces here. One of the main ones is in crypto, you have to kind of choose your battles and you have to choose where you want to focus and spend your time. And for us, we really wanted to focus on being the spot desk where counterparties could trade spot both electronically via the chats, know that they were getting the, the absolute best execution that they could get in the space. And so we really leaned into that. We really kind of put our blinders on and said, we want to be the spot desk of choice, the liquidity provider of last resort in spot for the whole market. And I think that at the time, you know, the options market had not grown large enough yet. And that's obviously changed. The options market has grown a lot and not just in the past three months, but, you know, over the past year. And so for us, you know, now it is time to get involved there. We are trading uh, with counterparties now, and those can either be listed options, something like CME, something like Darabit, or they can be OTC. We can trade OTC options via an ISDA. And, you know, this is not, it's not just options. Uh, We're also going to be trading NDFs with our counterparties. And to your comment about the credit risk, that's certainly true. But one thing that we've obviously seen is that the size of the counterparties has grown a lot larger. And right. now a lot of them are actually larger companies than Cumberland and DRW. So they're the ones who are looking at us and saying, okay, you know, it, they're Cumberland, we know them, but there's, it's more symmetric when it comes to uh, the sizing and the credit risk there. Oh, I love to be able to be a customer asking Don that very question. It's like, mm, I'm not sure about you, Don, you know, and watching him tut. The, uh, that's great to hear because, you know, he's been a pioneer in, in options trading, you know, and, and even when, uh, I remember even on the life floor, you know, when he first turned up in London and, you know, we, we thought we traded fairly large sizes and we, it was nothing compared to the size that Don chucked around, you know, and he was even bigger than Swiss Bank O'Connor and UBS and, you know, the banks were just in awe of him and, and it was always his own money, which is just incredible, you know, and, and, and it's so cool how well he's done. Going back to the, uh, the DeFi side you mentioned earlier. So, you know, I had an interesting pod with a, um, uh, from a trading firm, HFT in the business, where they've now become a very active market makers in DeFi as well. And they're kind of blending CeFi and DeFi trading. Where's Cumberland in this journey of DeFi? Yeah, so for a while we were doing things like listing some of the DeFi coins as an OTC trade, which is kind of like a centralized way of being involved in DeFi. We helped found the DeFi Alliance. So again, that's a somewhat centralized way of getting involved in the space and getting some skin in the game. But we're now moving towards DeFi in in a little bit more active way. When DeFi Summer began last year, which to me, I don't know the exact date that it started, but to me, it was June 2020 when Compounds first started liquidity mining. And by the way, we were talking about my early days of uh, at DRW, Rob Leshner, the, uh, the Compounds CEO, was actually uh, in my starting class at DRW. So he and I were in those mock trading sessions together. Yeah. No way. I had no idea. So, so when that kind of all started kicking off, I had like this, this real moment of FOMO where I said, I wish that I had been spending the last two years learning about DeFi. We have counterparties who have been trying to talk to us about DeFi since 2018. And I had this moment where I was like, man, I, I should have listened. I should already know all of this stuff right now. And I don't. And I realized that that was a little bit silly. And so what I did is I said, okay, I'm going to spend a couple hours every night uh, for a month or two. 
and I am going to learn about DeFi. I am going to roll up my sleeves. I am going to read everything I can get my hands on. I'm going to follow everyone on Twitter. I'm going to read all the mediums. And I am going to get familiar with these products. And you know, maybe at the end of a month or two, it's still an early enough market that maybe at the end of that, I'll be one of the t- global top 500 most knowledgeable DeFi people in the space. And it kind of worked. I didn't foresee how just how many people would come to DeFi. And so I don't think yeah. I'm anywhere close to the top 500. But that kind of that kind of approach has always worked really well for me. Whereas basically you say like, okay, I'm going to take some of my free time and I'm going to learn about this thing that I don't know anything about. And so at the end of it, you know, I have I feel like myself and other people on the team were able to get ourselves pretty comfortable footing in DeFi. Now, if you and I want to get involved on some DeFi platform, whether it's, you know, buying an NFT or aping into a liquidity farm or or doing whatever, you know, it's pretty easy, right? You spin up your MetaMask, you you check some ETH and you do some transactions and you're in. And maybe it goes well, maybe it yeah. doesn't. Okay. For institutions, it's not like that, right? If a bank decides that they want to start yield farming, uh, there are going to be multiple years of work that are going to go into it, right? You're going to have to think mm-hmm. about security controls, on-chain AML, worrying about MEV, thinking about how to book liquidity provider tokens from an operational side. Like there's all of this stuff that you don't think about when you're just doing it with your own money. So Cumberland has gone through this process. We've thought about this stuff. We've thought about how does an institution get comfortable with this space? It's been a really informative process, not just because it taught us about DeFi, but in a way because it taught us about how institutions have to think about this space. So this has led us to form some theses. One of them, for example, is we're really excited about the idea of permissioned pools because a permissioned pool basically takes away a lot of those questions. It kind of answers it for you because you can say, okay, if there's KYC on this pool, then it's going to make it easier for a bank, for example, to do the AML required to trade with this pool. It's also made us a lot more excited, uh, by the way, about centralized AMMs, which obviously at CoinFlex, you guys are really familiar with and a pioneer in the space, right? AMMs bring a lot of utility. And whenever someone says the word AMM, people automatically assume that you're talking about a DEX because mm-hmm. AMMs grew up in the decentralized space because it was necessary. But AMMs are actually like a piece of financial technology that can apply to centralized exchanges as well, as you guys are seeing. You know, one of the things that interests me is is this going to work in non crypto assets? Could you have an AMM? on the CME? Could you have one on large institutional centralized exchanges? That's something that we find really interesting and that we've, we've thought about a lot because AMMs bring a lot of, you know, they, they bring a lot of utility and value that you don't get from order book AMMs. And the problem with on-chain AMMs is you have to do, you have to learn all of these different things. And a centralized mm-hmm. AMM, you can get access a lot more quickly. In fact, you can trade on a centralized AMM like CoinFlex without really considering that it's an AMM. You can just be like, yeah, it's an order book. I don't care. There's actually yeah. really no difference from a trading perspective. No. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, if you had told me 20 years ago when I started in derivatives trading that, you know, Cumberland will be trading in the same futures order book as, as an old lady who's fast asleep with $2,000 of liquidity in there, uh, you, I would have been like, you know, look, you know, you need to lay off the uh, the booze, you know, like, you know, get to bed. But it's absolutely fascinating. This, this you know, to... To allow passive capital on CoinFlex to interact with active capital and like you guys in the same order book with the same fair chance, same fees, same Q priority, same order, you know, API limits, 
it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a game changer for for the industry, and we're very very grateful for DeFi for showing us the way here. Now we've obviously we've in our view we've 10x it with a lot of the functionalities around repo and single collateral and a bunch of stuff that from a functionality perspective on Coinflex, which is way superior to the DeFi MMs. So we've got that to our advantage, uh, capital efficiency, leverage, things like that. And of course, you know, we, you know, we've got the, the DeFi-centric benefits too, i.e. there's no gas fees, there's no MEV or front running like you mentioned. And the, the blockchain, we're not limited by blockchain speeds. You know, you can trade hundreds of times per second versus, you know, six second, 15 second blocks on ETH. But uh, it's really, really fascinating, and I, 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 you know, I just really cannot stop learning and and have enough of this new world. It's incredible. Another example of a of a piece of financial technology which has emerged in crypto, but doesn't necessarily have to be crypto native. And I think that you guys have really found a good utilization for it. Is the perp? We know why the perp emerged in crypto, so that you could basically have a single asset, both as the collateral and as the products that you were trading. But perp could have come about. In traditional markets as well, it just didn't. And so we think that this is another product which you know we might see in other non-crypto products eventually. And you know, I think one of the things that you guys have done really well is that you've recognized that the space that we're in now is not that different than the space that yourself and Mark come from. And you know, the way that you've kind of married the perpetual markets and the repo markets, I think is is really fascinating. And I, I don't see anyone else doing that yet. No, thank you. Paul Krebsy, we're running out of time because I'm, I'm, Leslie always reminds me to keep it short and sweet and we've got way over because it's been fascinating. But I really, really appreciate you making the time to get on the pod and thank you so much for joining Crypto Unstacked. Man, I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Thanks, dude.